Hi again, those of you walking in late and or in the annex, great to see all of you. Sorry we don't have a better seat, but we're really happy that you're here. Um, My name is John Mark, again, and uh, if you're new or visiting, our church is built around this very simple idea of practicing the way of Jesus together in Portland. So what that looks like is every few months we take on a practice from the life and teachings of Jesus of Nazareth, and we adopt it as our own. We adapt it to our stage of life, our gender, our Enneagram number, all of that stuff, and we work it out because we believe the way of Jesus is exactly that. It's a way of life. And we do this to become more like Jesus, to be with Jesus, and to live the way that he would live if he were us. And last week, we kicked off our spring practice of naming your stage of apprenticeship, which is an attempt at spiritual cartography, an attempt to map the spiritual journey. Part one, if you were here, was an overview of a stage theory paradigm that is ancient, goes all the way back to at least the second century, if not the first, called the three ways. And it's awakening, which is essentially a pre-stage, where you come awake to the reality of God and to your own soul in a culture that is asleep. Come awake to the spiritual in a culture that is locked into the material. Then you begin on what the ancients called purgation and then illumination, and then the end goal is what the ancients called union. And we left off last week with this very simple idea that the end goal of the spiritual journey is, in a word, love to live in the love of God for you, and to pass that love on to all others, which means that every step forward on the spiritual journey is a step in the direction of love. On that note, Bernard of Clairvaux, who at the turn of the first millennium wrote an essay called On the Love of God, in which he laid out his adaptation of the three ways paradigm, which was well known in his time and day. He said that on the spiritual journey, we pass through four stages of love. And I Love this, no pun intended. One, stage one, he called love of self, or Bernard called it immature love. And we all start here. And if you don't believe me, have parents. I have kids, or parents, either. (laughs) But kids, for sure. (laughs) I'm a little bit tired, sorry. And uh, I've I've yet to meet a devoted humanist who was also a parent of a two-year-old. I'm sure, theoretically, they exist. I just have yet to meet them. And then at some point, we mature past that to stage two, love of God for self, meaning we think we love God, and we kind of do, but we, what we actually love is the feeling that we get from God, or all the good things that we get from God in this life or in the life to come. And it's not all bad. Bernard called this prudent love. But eventually, as we age and as we near midlife and we hit this beautiful thing called disappointment, and let down, and you don't get the promotion, or you go through a divorce, or you get success, and you realize, oh, wow, this is not nearly what it's cracked up to be. You begin to realize that all of the things that we wanted to get from God are not nearly as great as we expected. And on the plus side, we realize that God is far better than any of us expected. And from there, we mature on to stage three, love of God for God or what Clairvaux called unselfish love. We come to just deeply enjoy God and his company for him. But you're still not there. You can enjoy God. You can enjoy his company. You can live for hours of every day and just rest in prayer and still have a heart full of anger or acrimony toward others, toward your parents, toward your children, toward your own soul, self-loathing or self-hate. Finally, we come to the end goal, what he called love of self for God 
or he also called it perfect or mature love, where we come to love all that is, not just God and all that is good and beautiful and true in us and in the world, but we come to love the world as it actually is, ourself as we actually are, the good, the bad, and the ugly, all of it laid bare in the compassion of God's eyes. We come to love our friends and past that even to love our enemies. This is the end goal of the spiritual journey and our apprenticeship to Jesus. On this, all stage theory paradigms agree from the first century to the 21st. As Paul put it to the Corinthians, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is what? Love, which is exactly what you would expect to hear from an apprentice of a rabbi who said the greatest command in all of the library of Scripture, and if you've read the Bible, it's not short. There's a lot of commands in there. The greatest one, Jesus said, was to, quote, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. That's from Deuteronomy 6. And then Jesus said, and he wasn't asked, but he said it anyway, my kind of teacher. Let me answer a question that you have not asked yet. Um, He said the second is very similar, and he quoted from Leviticus chapter 19, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that wasn't even my intro. That was just my good evening, everybody. (laughs) All I want to do with our short time together tonight, don't worry, it's not long, is connect the dots between our spring practice of naming your stage of apprenticeship and this idea that the end goal of the spiritual journey is love to Easter, which in your mind might not go together, but I would argue they are interdependent on one another. Thought experiment. The fact that I can stand up here in Portland, Oregon in 2019 on the west coast of America and say that the meaning of life is love and I don't know how many 500-ish of you in the room, almost all of you, I'm guessing, agree with that statement. You disagree, I'm sure, with a lot of what I say, but I'm guessing you agree with that statement. Even if you're here and you're not an apprentice of Jesus, and we're so happy you're here, wherever you're at on that spectrum, from Buddhist or Hindu to atheist to agnostic to, in the language of one of my friends, I don't believe in God, I believe in science. Wherever you're at in that spectrum, we're so happy that you're here. I'm guessing that you still agree with that, that the meaning of life is love, or you at least really like the idea. Now, just for a moment, pause. Where does this idea come from, as ubiquitous as it is in the late modern West? Does it come from science? Clearly, the answer to that is no. It does not come from Darwinian theory. I was reading the other day this Russian philosopher, Vladimir Slavyov, and this was his summary of secular ethics. Quote, man descended from apes, therefore we must love one another. <laughs> exactly. So if you've read molecular biology, you know we, we don't get the idea that the meaning of life is love from survival of the fittest. Not from politics. Have you been reading the news this week? It's not in the Mueller report, not even in the redacted version. It's not like, (laughs) love, let's keep that out. It's a little bit dangerous for the next election cycle. No, not from the Eastern religions, for which there's much I'm grateful for. But Buddha himself, who was so brilliant in so many ways, left his wife and his child to go off and teach happiness as a byproduct of detachment, not love. Same with the Greek philosophers, a secular version of the same. 
So where does this idea that almost all of us nod our head in agreement and say, yes, love, even if my life does not measure up to that, that is what I want my life to grow and mature into. Where does this idea come from? I would submit to you a working theory that it comes from Jesus of Nazareth, a Jewish rabbi from the first century, from a backwater nation with zero power or political clout that would have been lost to the sands of history were it not for Easter Sunday. On that note, Luke chapter 24, just read with me and consider the story of Easter. We left off in verse 12 earlier. Let's pick up in verse 13. Now that same day, Easter Sunday, Two of them, them in context is the apprentices of Jesus. And notice it's anonymous, which is from the writer Luke. It's on purpose. One of them is named in a minute. Scholars speculate it's a husband and wife, but there's no name here. And that's on purpose for you to read yourself in the story. It's any man, it's any woman. We're going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. Jesus' death, the rumor that he was alive. Most people thought it was, quote, nonsense. We read that. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast, right? There's a sadness on the first Easter. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? So this, it's a little bit lost in translation to English over the centuries, but this is funny. This is Luke's attempt at humor or an ancient form of it, irony. Jesus is the only one who knows the things that have happened there in these days. But I love that Jesus, and this is Jesus' sense of humor, he just plays along. What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, clearly more than a teacher, um, powerful in word and in deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him, a victim of religious violence, as our brothers and sisters in Sri Lanka were this morning. He is no stranger to that. But we had hoped, notice past tense, that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel, meaning the one there is language for the Messiah, the would-be king of Israel, come to usher in the kingdom of God, read, defeat the Roman Empire and set us free. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us that they'd seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus, and it's clear that the two here do not believe. He said to them, and this is Jesus' harshest language in the Gospel of Luke, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said on all the scriptures concerning himself. Now that is a podcast I would love to download. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us. It's nearly night. The day is over. He went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, and this is just rich and symbolic language for the Lord's Supper, he took bread, gave thanks, same language used a few chapters before for the night before his death, broke it and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened. And they recognized him. And classic Jesus, he disappeared from their sight. (laughs) So Jesus. 
They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? The Belgian theologian Edward Schillebex was once asked, if you had to pick one story or text from the Bible to name our cultural moment in the late modern West, what would you pick? And he immediately said, Luke chapter 24, the road to Emmaus. Notice the few similarities between their first century world and our 21st century world. First, they lost faith in Jesus, at least not in his life, but in his death and his resurrection, in Jesus as the Messiah, and with it lost hope. When Jesus died, their faith in Jesus as anything more than just a rabbi with some crazy ideas, but as the Messiah or the King of Israel and their hope for the coming of the kingdom of God, all of that died with him. The key line is, quote, we had hoped that he was the one. Two, the result was melancholy, confusion, and aimlessness. Melancholy, verse 17, quote, their faces downcast, a kind of pre-millennial Portland in winter and we kind of emotion. <laughs> they are confused, verse 23. They came and told us different people are saying different things about whether or not Jesus is dead or alive, and they don't know who or what to believe. And as a result, they are aimless. In the story, walking away from Jerusalem, which at a liter- literary perspective, remember you're reading history, but you're also reading literature. And from a literary perspective, Jerusalem is the place, one of God's presence. It was the place of the temple, which at the time was the locus point of God's presence on earth, the overlap of heaven and earth, the top of a mountain, literally. That's where God was. And it's also the place of God, if you buy into Jesus' claims, death and resurrection. They're walking away from that. Put another way, they're walking away from God, from a literary perspective, and into the unknown, into Emmaus. We have no idea why they are even going there or what the end destination is. They're just heading off into the unknown. Does this sound remotely familiar to our day and age? You know, I, like so many of you, was heartstruck on Monday afternoon by the fire at Notre Dame. Um, T and I, we, so if you've ever been to Paris, you have some kind of a Notre Dame story. Uh, my wife and I were there on our honeymoon years ago, and Notre Dame is still above everything. These stand out in my mind's eye. And I can't help but view the fire as symbolic of our cultural moment. You know, Notre Dame is almost a 1,000 years old. It was likely under construction during Bernard of Clairvaux's life. It's point zero for Paris, meaning it's the point from which distance was measured in the city and in the nation. So central was the role of faith in France's culture a millennia ago. Now it is a burned-down tourist attraction and a lightning rod of socio-political tension on Twitter in the most secular country in the world. We think of, you know, the Scandinavian countries as kind of the future of the West, but we forget they were some of the last to secularize, not until after World War II. They are the most communal of all the European nations, really some of the only to not buy into the radical individualism of the Enlightenment, and the first to now, or the last just now to deal with immigration and the tensions of globalism. So really, France is a far better canary in the coal mine for what's ahead for the West as a whole, as it was one of the first, if not the first, to secularize. And so it's hard not to watch this tragic story unfold on the news and in your Twitter feed and think of it as a harbinger of the West as a whole. 
in the West, we have lost faith. I mean, not all of us, but the huge chunk of our society. Sociologists label our society post-Christian. I was reading a New York article on the fire in Notre Dame Tuesday morning, and this brilliant journalist had this throwaway line, quote, Notre Dame was written at a time when people still believed in things like God, heaven, and hell. I thought, actually, a few people still do believe in things like God, heaven, and hell. But that casual brush aside of the faith of billions by an elite in a coastal city just like our own shows just how far we've come, at least if you live in a Portland or New York, you're educated, or that's your kind of reading material. Now, to say we've lost faith is very misleading. We actually have not lost faith. James Howler, in his academic work, Stages of Faith, which is the seminal work on developmental psychology, makes the point that faith is not a religious thing, it is a human thing, that we literally cannot live, you cannot navigate a single day without faith. You have faith in things as simple as your car or public transit or your Uber app to get you home or Trader Joe's to feed you dinner or whatever it is. You have faith in science, you have faith in education, you have faith in a book that you read or a podcast that you listen to or the New York Times or whatever your news choice is, or you have faith in God, it's not that we in the West have traded faith for science, as so many people assume, but it's that we've traded one system of belief in which there was a creator and a creation, there was God and the community of God, for another system of belief in which there's no creator, no creation, there's nature and the social animal. The problem with the emerging system of belief in the West is it has no meaning In it, we are literally just animals with time and chance on our side. And the problem is that human beings can't live without meaning. Neurobiologists tell us our brains are literally wired to search for meaning, like your brain is set up to search for coherence in complexity. Viktor Frankl, in his famous book, Man's Search for Meaning, with this so worth your time if you've not read it. It's not very long. Jewish psychologist who ended up at Auschwitz, His wife was put to death. His family was put to death. I mean, just living horror. But through that, he turned it into a bit of a kind of research experiment as a psychologist, as a doctor, and began to treat patients right there in Auschwitz. And he came to the conclusion by the end of the war, and he did live through it, that the people who survived the concentration camp, some of whom, he went on to say, were even happy in it, were not the biggest not the strongest, not the smartest, not the best educated, not the most wealthy or those that come from privilege. It was those who had meaning in their suffering. Those who had a responsibility, a sense of responsibility and a commitment to live for something outside of their own survival. And he said, without that, we die literally or at least psychologically, whether you live in an Auschwitz or in a bougie apartment downtown. Now, to be fair, ethicists talk about the difference between discovered meaning and developed meaning. Discovered meaning is meaning with a capital M, meaning it's meaning that comes from outside of yourself. It's transcendent to our day, our age, our culture, our ethnic background, our gender, our social class, all of that. Now, this is a very unpopular idea in our society for all sorts of reasons. One, I think, from a cynical perspective, is we recognize that if there is one meaning with a capital M in life then we are not free to do as we please. It's one of the reasons so many people champion a progressive ethical vision, because if so-and-so gets to do whatever they want, then I get to do whatever I want too. 
The problem is we can't live without some kind of meaning, so we have to come up with what ethicists call a developed meaning, which is not bad. You have to come up, you have to develop, you have to come up with some kind of a reason to live. For many people, it's work, which is fascinating, considering that the stats are overwhelming, that people, for the most part, do not like their job. Odd thing to turn your life into, but okay. For many in our city, our city is not a careerist city. It's hedonism. It's the next Tinder hookup, the next bar opening, the next speakeasy, and the next dinner out. It could be any number of things. It could be something simple and benign, like leave the world better off than you found it, or save the planet, or just you know drink craft beer. Whatever, which is fine. There you go. The problem with developed meetings, even though many of them are good, is this is the tricky thing for the West as we go forward. They can't hold a society together in love. We end up fracturing into tribal war based on our own individualistic vision of a happy and healthy life. But not only have we lost faith, or better said meaning, to a sense we've lost hope. So this is just not like Happy Easter stuff, but the suicide rate, just Happy Easter, speaking of Easter, the suicide rate continues to rise at a serious level. I mean, to skyrocket. It's up 24, 25% over the last 15 years, not to mention the number of people on antidepressants, which is now the second highest volume drug in the world, the number of people on psychotropics for anxiety. Another recent New York Times article on the spike in suicide, mental illness, anxiety, depression, unhappiness, which is you know all over our country right now, and in the increase. Robert Putnam of Harvard, um, you may recognize his name, He's the author of Bowling Alone. For several decades now, he's been on the kind of cutting edge of research around the fallout of individualism in America. Well-respected scholar, sociologist. He was interviewed about why this spike? Why is it that even as our material well-being is higher than ever, our technological mastery over nature, medicine, life expectancy, even civil rights, still a long ways to go, but far ahead of any other culture at any point in human history, why is it that happiness continues to decline or hopelessness continues to rise. And he was the one person who said the reason is hopelessness. Hopelessness. Andrew DeBalco from Columbia University, in his analysis of American history, The Real American Dream, A Meditation on Hope, writes about three different hopes that America has built around since its founding. First was God, and this was the earliest and the most short-lived, of the Puritans who came over on the Mayflower, most of whom were running away from religious violence or persecution, he writes this, quote, Hope was chiefly expressed through a Christian story that gave meaning to suffering and pleasure alike and promised deliverance from death. This was short-lived. It was basically gone by the time of the Revolutionary War. Most of those in that worldview refused to fight against England for reasons of the Sermon on the Mount. Number two, the next hope became nation. Under the influence of the Enlightenment, faith in God began to wane among the elites long before it was popular in culture. Instead of putting our hope in God to usher in the kingdom of God, we put our hope in America and the Constitution as the, quote, greatest nation on earth. DeBanco writes that we substituted a deified nation for a God. This lasted up until around World War II for most people, but fell apart in the 1960s. Since then, our third hope has been put on what he calls self-actualization. I love this from Tim Keller. He writes, In our current phase of American history, we have lost belief in God and salvation or in any shared sense of national greatness or destiny. We do not see serving God or the nation as being more important than self-actualization. 
We do not consider the claims of religion or national loyalty to ever overrule our pursuit of individual freedom and happiness. Our hope, this is a great one-line summary of our city, by the way, our hope is now for individual freedom to pursue our own private ideas of good and to discover our authentic selves. The great trouble with that story, however, is that it does not do what every other worldview and cultural narrative has sought to do in the past. It cannot incorporate into itself and render meaningful the single most immutable and certain fact of human life, death. Just here to encourage you this Easter, you will die. (laughs) Now, this is a problem, the inability to grapple with that reality, Because just like faith, we can't live without hope. If you want to know how key hope is, just think of a time when you were hopeless. Remember what it felt like. Maybe you're in that spot right here tonight. It's a miracle that you even got out of bed and got to church. Or think of a family member or a friend or somebody you love who is in a season of hopelessness. The theologian Emil Bruner once said, what oxygen is to the lungs, hope is to the meaning of life. There's all sorts of neurobiology behind this too, dopamine. It's literally your brain does not function to get you out of bed if you do not have hope. And optimism does not count at a neurobiological level. It's more than like a positive outlook on life. You have to actually have hope, a conviction of coming good based on reality, not on wishful thinking. We are hope-based creatures. We simply cannot live inside a meaningless, incoherent, random chance universe free-floating from one experience to the next, run by the desire to feel good in the moment until we die. We simply can't live that way. We need hope just to get out of bed in the morning. We've lost hope We've lost a lot of faith or at least meaning in the West. And the result, I would argue, is the same for us as a society as for the two anonymous disciples on the road to Emmaus. One, there is a melancholy. We love our city, right? Many of us moved here just to live in this city. But I've been here long enough to realize, as most of you have as well, that underneath the glittering image of Portland hedonism is a kind of pervasive sadness, a nihilism over just the futility of a life where the main reason to keep going is brunch on Sunday morning, right? We have a whole decade of life here that we might just label brunch, 25 to 35, (laughs) you know? There's a reason, like one of the things that I've just been thinking about a lot in our city is why, in particular, if you're in the urban core of the city, why is there almost nobody over the age of 40, And by the way, if you're here over the age of 40, you are royalty. We honor you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, please bring all of your friends. Um, But seriously, walk, walk on the streets of the city. Part of that's because you can only stave off the existential questions of lunch with a beer mosa for so long. At some point, kombucha on tap is great, but it's just not enough. Like at some point, the questions in the back of your mind. People think that Christians have to shove down the questions about reality. No, we don't. Are you kidding? Jesus asked more questions than he answered, right? When we don't feel safe to ask questions, it's because we've messed up the Jesus story, not because something's wrong with the Jesus story. I would argue it's the secular narrative that you, ha- you have to be really careful what you think about, really, really careful. You have to shove down the doubt and don't let it come to the surface. 
And many of us just can't do that very long. And so there is a sadness. And, and we're not immune to this as followers of Jesus, especially in winter. Like there is a sadness to life. There is a sadness to winter, at least for those of us that grew up in California. There is, trust me, all right? Um, some of that's just life, but there's, there's a larger sadness underneath our culture. Two, there's a confusion, especially now with globalism, which I'm all grateful for, and the internet, and free-floating ideas, which is great in so many ways. I can stand up here and tell you about Bernard of Clairvoy, who lived a thousand years ago on the other side of the world. But still, there's more confusion now than ever before about what is truth. People have just given up on the idea of truth, right? Our whole city, what's the saying we hear constantly now? Find your truth. Last time I read a dictionary, that does not make grammatical sense. You put the pronoun your in front of the noun truth, and it's now nonsensical. We've just given up on the idea altogether because it's so, there's so many ideas out there, so many opinions, so many religions, so many traditions, so much science, so much of interpretation of science. And this person says this and that person says that. And there's just this confusion, especially around Jesus. Sure, we know he was alive and a prophet and a teacher and said some crazy stuff, but is he still alive? I don't know. We just live with this kind of culture-wide agnosticism. And as a result, there is an aimlessness to our city in particular, so many people move here to get away from something. I, I literally have stopped asking people recently, so why did you move here? Because I've realized every time I create this awkward moment, because very rarely do people have an answer. Most of the time it's to get away from mom and dad or to just live in the city or to do something new or to get away from home or to get out of the south or whatever it is, right? So you laugh because you know, like those are five of my friends. Um, but there's something, it's like the disciples in the story. Where are they going? You don't even know. They're just going away from what they thought was the place of God and the place of Jesus' resurrection. So my friends and my family and to all of you that are at gas, we're so happy you're here. Whatever you think about all of this and however crazy it sounds, I just want to submit to you that into our city and our late modern world of burning cathedrals and Mueller reports, Easter is better news than ever. It's good news in the language of Jesus of Nazareth. It's gospel. Melancholy, confusion, and aimlessness are exactly what you would expect life to feel like from the inside if Jesus is dead and his body is decomposing somewhere under the Palestinian soil. If there is no creator, there is no creation, there's no design other than nature with the capital N and survival of the fittest, if life is meaningless, if we're just animals, as one writer I read a few days ago put it, quote, insignificant accidents in an uncaused chaos churning, if we're heading nowhere but toward entropy, if everything that you hold most dear, God, morality, society, human rights, equality, love, beauty, if all of that is just neurochemical firings of your brain, somehow rooted in evolutionary theory, if you're on your own and no one is coming to save us and all of the ideas and institutions that we put our hope in to usher in utopia from the isms of the 20th century that we killed each other over to politics to Wall Street, to Hollywood, to Silicon Valley, to the church, which is just as bad half the time, if all of it is corrupted by human nature, bent in on itself, then melancholy, confusion, and aimlessness are exactly what you would expect, and they are here to stay. Get used to it and put your money in pharmaceuticals because that's our only hope. But if Jesus is alive and the tomb is empty, 
and there's no body hiding in the desert sand, if Jesus is who he said he was, if he is not just a teacher, he was that brilliant mind, but if he was more a prophet, great, even more, if he was the embodiment of the God that he called Father, what we all ache for, the love of a parent, a God of love and compassion and hospitality. And if the kingdom of God The life-giving presence and healing rule of God is here in part and it's coming in full. If Easter was the beginning of the end for death and entropy's reign, if the resurrection of Jesus is just the start of what's to come, the resurrection of all Jesus' followers to live, not somewhere up in the clouds with Michelangelo, but here in this earth, made new in an age of peace and justice and human flourishing, all in love. That, my friends, is good news. It's really good news. It means that we have faith in reality, not in a myth or a figment of our imagination. If Jesus had not come back from the dead, none of us would be here tonight. I mean, just not, like, it's ridiculous. Unlike Buddha or other luminary teachers, Jesus not only said great things about ethics, he made audacious claims about his self-identity. He made audacious claims to be the Messiah, but not only that, the Son of God. Without Easter, he would be just another would-be Messiah, another Bar Kokhba, or more likely a failed Jewish freedom fighter that nobody ever even heard of, never wrote a book, never said anything worth writing down, lost to the sands of history. But because of Easter, something so radical. I mean, historians argue, I read one the other day, said if you can set aside the secular presupposition that dead people stay dead, which is a fairly decent presupposition that most of us hold, and contrary to popular opinion, people in the first century were actually just as aware of that as we are in the 21st century. Pre-science, pre the splitting of the atom, people were fairly aware that dead people stay dead. If you can set aside that presupposition then most historians say there's just as much evidence for the resurrection of Jesus as there is for the fall of Rome or the rise of Caesar Augustus or pick pretty much any event from around the same time in history. One of the many reasons is there's just no other logical explanation for what turned a whole bunch of Jewish monotheists who would not even bow down to an idol to turn around and start worshiping a Jewish rabbi as the embodiment of God. That was heresy to the point that millions of them were killed for upwards of 400 years before it was legalized. There are letters in the New Testament written by Jesus' brothers. I have two boys. The oldest is down here. What would it take for Moses to believe that Jesus, that Jude was the son of God? <laughs> it, would, it would take something crazy, Right? We were reading Jude last night in the New Testament, and we thought, man, what would it take for you to write a letter about your dead brother and say, actually, he's alive and he's the Son of God? My point is, we have a faith that is rooted in history. I love the Bible, and I trust it. My faith is not in this. I love the church in spite of the fact that I've been around it long enough to know all the good and all the bad. But this is not why I follow Jesus. Our faith is rooted in Jesus himself and in an event in time and space in the 30s AD in a hill outside of Jerusalem early on a Sunday morning when people went to anoint a body for burial and it was gone and nowhere to be found. 
not in an ideology, not in an ism, not in an ethical vision. All of that stuff's in there, not in a book, not in a community, in a dead body brought back to life and hundreds of people that were witnesses to Jesus alive from the dead and almost all of whom died because they refused to recant. I saw Jesus after his death and he was still alive. Man, that, that's a faith to live into. That's a trust to base your life on. Because of that, we have hope that this event that changed the course of history, because of that, we have hope that human history is going somewhere, that our life is going somewhere, that someone is out ahead of us, alive and well, and Lord over all creation. And through our pain and our setback and all the stuff that is heinous and not the will of God in our life, he is still there out ahead of us, our champion to lead and guide us forward. That the story that started with Abraham and reached its zenith in the one true Israelite, Jesus the Messiah, that story still is not over and the best part is still to come. So when politicians let us down or when the government lets us down or when the economy or our career lets us down or when our church lets us down or when I let you down, and I'm sure it's already happened, but if not, just hang out, it will. (laughs) Or when we face suffering or even death itself, we still get out of bed in the morning not because we believe that human beings can solve all the world's problems. We believe they can't because we are the main problem in the world, right? Put bluntly, the human heart is the main thing that's wrong with the world. But we, because we believe that Jesus can and he has and he will, and we are living proof of that. If Jesus can do a work in us, there's hope for the world. I am so far to go, and I'm so aware of that. But sometimes a thought experiment, I did it just this morning in church during worship by singing. I just imagine myself, who would I be without Jesus? Some of you are just really nice, happy people. You would, like, I think my wife, without Jesus, would just be really liberal, but pretty nice for the most part, <laughs> you know? Man, I, this is me with Jesus. Can you imagine me without Jesus? Oh, horror. I mean, uh, I would be so full of anger and rage and workaholism, burning through marriages, wreaking havoc in the life of my children, racked by mental illness. I, I just, I know who I would be without Jesus. Man, it's good for me to keep that sober reality before my mind and recognize I have, if there's hope for me, there's hope for anybody. Right? If there's hope for you, there's hope for anybody. <laughs> it's true of all of us. We have faith, we have hope, and because of that, we have love. We follow a rabbi who, against evolutionary theory, against the happiness mantra of the late modern West, against the political survival of the fittest, said love is the meaning of life. To grow and mature, not only in the awareness of God's love for you, beautiful, but to let that love transform your mind and your entire body to where you become a conduit of that love for all friend, family, and enemy. If you know anything about systems theory, you know, philosophers point out that faith, hope, and love form an interdependent system. Every day as I read the news and watch our culture drift farther and farther away from Jesus and God, I can't help but wonder, without faith, And without hope, can there be love? I hope the answer to that question is yes, because we live in a secular city. But I'm actually not sure if the answer is yes. 
as I come to Easter this year, you know, we come to this story every single spring. And it's just a great chance for us to reevaluate our life with Jesus in light of the resurrection. Let me just tell you the intersection of this story in my life this week. I just feel so much gratitude. You know, we live in this hyper-secular city that we love, and so we're just swimming in this narrative all week long that is so contrary to Jesus' narrative of reality. And uh, I've been reading this memoir. I'd love to read at night before I go to bed. Normally I read fiction, but um, at some point it's just too depressing. So I read in a memoir by a secular post-Christian. Um, which, that was sarcasm. That was, okay, sorry. <laughs> Not funny. Um, I'm reading this memoir this last week called A Sense of Direction by Gideon Lewis Krauss. Brilliant. I picked it up because the writing's so good. Brilliant story. And it's this fascinating story about two 20-something millennials well-educated, upwardly mobile, Fulbright scholar, both post-faith. One was the son of Jewish rabbis, and the other is a post-Catholic who's just full of vitriol toward church and hypocrisy, who go to hike the Camino, which if you know what that is, it's a Christian pilgrimage route in Spain that has, for the most part, turned into a secular kind of backpacking mecca. And so it's this memoir about two post-Christian millennials walking a Christian pilgrimage route. And really what it's about is the aimless, the title is Sense of Direction. Really it's about the aimlessness of our generation. People who have education, intelligence, universities under the belt, Fulbright, all the stuff, and are literally wandering around the world, just sleeping with all sorts of people, doing drugs, alcohol, good coffee all over the place, and yet literally have no sense of direction. And it's a beautiful memoir, and there's great stuff in it, and it's a, not really a happy ending, but a good ending. But man, all week long, as I've been reading this story about two post-Christian millennials walking the Camino and reading Luke 24 about two apprentices of Jesus walking the road to Emmaus, the emotion that is at the surface of my heart this Easter is just gratitude. I am so grateful that I have a rabbi to follow, that I have something and someone smarter than me, better than me, older than me, wiser than me, to lead and guide the way, to commit. And I'm happy to say that somebody else knows better than me how to live. For some people, that's really a rub. I, yep, sure, sign me up. I need help. And I'm so grateful to have someone to follow, and not just a wise teacher. There are lots of wise teachers to have somebody who is the embodiment of love itself, who broke the greatest fear of all, the fear of death itself. If we don't have to be scared of death, what do we have to be scared of? And I'm so grateful. So whatever it is that comes to the surface of your heart this Easter, whether it's that or something else, just let it simmer there even tonight as you go home and this week as you move forward. For all of you, as we end, who are followers of Jesus, Jesus invites you to apprentice under him and to grow and mature in all the stages of love. And for all of you who are not yet followers of Jesus, Jesus invites you to follow him. And we invite you to follow him along with us or so many other wonderful followers of Jesus in our city with all of our mess, all of our questions, all of our doubt, all of the stuff we get wrong. If and when you're ready to follow Jesus, the way that you begin is through baptism, 
where you identify with the death and the resurrection of Jesus. How? You go under the water in solidarity with the cross. You come up out of the water in solidarity with Easter. It's a way of saying, I die to my old way of life. I come alive to a new way of life, what Paul called the way of love. And I commit to follow Jesus into his reality of life and joy. We have some people that are about to do that. Are you ready to cheer them on? Thank you for listening to the Bridgetown Church Podcast. We are in the middle of a year-long capital campaign to raise money to buy a building on the inner core, an old, beautiful, historic church building about a mile from where we meet right now. If you have been blessed at all by this podcast and would like to give to that over and above your regular giving to your church, wherever you call home, we would love to have you participate in that. Feel free to visit Bridgetown church slash give for more information. Thanks for listening.